Coming up on today's show, UCP MLA and caucus chair Todd Lowen dropped a bomb resigning from his position as caucus chair and calling on Premier Jason Kennedy to step down as leader of the party, saying he's lost the confidence of the province. We'll try and get some insight onto what's going on in the Middle East as Israel and Gaza have once again exploded into violence. As you know, simmering discontent within the UCP party has boiled over in the last 12 hours as we see UCP caucus chair and two-term MLA Todd Lowen uh, in a Facebook post announced that he is stepping down from his position and he is also calling on Premier Jason Kenney to resign as leader of the party. Mr. Lowen joins us now to talk a bit more about this decision he's made. Um, Mr. Lowen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. appreciate your time. Yes, uh, thank you, Shay. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Um, why don't we just start with a Facebook post in the middle of the night? Why did you choose that strategy? Well, I just wanted to, I needed to get the message out of, of what's happening. I, I obviously sent uh, the Premier an email, and I sent uh, all my caucus colleagues an email, too. And then I thought it was uh, best that I inform the, you know, the people that I represent, my constituents. And uh, I'm just doing my best to represent my constituents. So those are the people that elected me, and uh, those are the ones I advocate on behalf of. And, and I want to advocate for the best government we can have. Now, as we know, uh, you were one of the um, MLAs who was very upset with the Premier, or disagreed with the Premier, I guess we should say, in terms of the way he was handling the pandemic and things like that. Why did you decide this was the right time to take this next step, resign from your position as caucus chair, and also call on the Premier to resign? Why now? Well, you know, this this is a this isn't just about COVID. This is about leadership, and uh, and that's the main issue right now is leadership within uh, within our caucus. And you know, things have uh, been getting worse. Uh, just in the last week, we've had two cancelled caucus meetings, and uh, caucus members haven't been informed why these ca- these meetings were cancelled. And of course, caucus meetings—that's the opportunity for for members of the government, member MLAs, to to speak their mind and be able to ask questions and and get direction from where you know where government's headed. And uh, obviously without those opportunities in caucus meetings that, uh, you know, it leaves MLAs in a situation where they, they don't know what's happening. We haven't, uh, we've also canceled uh, two, now three weeks of the legislative session. And uh, so, again, it just, uh, there's just a, a, you know, large gap in communication and a, and a huge gap in leadership. Now, is this a recent development or is this something that's been going on since Jason Kenney was, became Premier? Or has he always governed this way or have you seen a change in the way things operate? I think overall there was uh, the first few months I think uh, seemed to go very well. It seemed like at that time we had a you know a, a team and I think everybody was feeling pretty good. But I think this has been a, a steady di- decline in the last year and a half. Actually, it isn't something that just started with COVID. This started long before COVID, and uh, so it's just been a you know a situation where it just seems like uh, caucus members don't have an opportunity to uh, to be heard and and to be respected in, in their views and and that opportunity to be able to represent their constituents. And I'm a- Assuming these concerns have been raised in the past with the Premier from yourself and from others who feel the same way, saying, we don't feel we're being heard? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, you know, it's it's almost uh, like one of those things where you say, well, you at first you whisper and then you nudge and then you talk and then you yell, then you scream, and then, and then it gets to the point where yeah, people just, uh, you know, have had enough. And I think it's, uh, it's just getting more and more frustrating all the time. Um, now that you've taken this step, and we know there are other disgruntled MLAs, uh, you did get a message of support from another uh, UCP MLA, Mr. Hansen, saying he, he, he admires your courage. Um, do you think there will be other people joining you? Have there been discussions uh, amongst the UCP caucus in terms of leadership and saying we need to speak out and do something, or are you acting on your own here? 
Yeah, you know what? I'm acting on my own, and I, th- I think the, the other MLAs they'll have their you know they have their opportunity to do what they feel is right for themselves and uh, and for their constituents. Obviously, uh, speaking out like this isn't an easy thing to do. It's a it's a very very tough tough thing to do, and uh, so I, I'll leave uh, the other MLAs you know to decide how they feel that they can best represent their constituents and uh, and make their voices heard. You know, you, uh, just explain this to me. You say that your voice wasn't heard, and Jason Kenney wasn't considerate of what caucus was feeling and what they would like to see happen. But to, you know, in in his defense and what he has said publicly and the fact that he has tolerated a lot of infighting and a lot of public opposition to his government policy, he's saying, I do welcome these voices. I hear them. Indeed, we know they've been public. So how can you square that circle and say we're not being heard when he's given you license to go out and publicly make these kinds of statements? Well, I, th- I think, uh, you know, what happens behind closed doors is probably somewhat different than what happens in the public. You know, obviously, uh, you know, it's easy to say that, uh, that you know, caucus has a voice and, uh, and they, they're, they're free to do those things. But, we, you know, we've obviously seen things with, where the, the people that have spe- spoken out uh, have been uh, not treated as well and had the opportunities that they, they've had taken away from them. So I think uh, it's maybe not fair to, to say that, uh, you know, that, that there's no repercussions for, for speaking out in this caucus. Well, I mean, he, he's kept them all in caucus. He hasn't, um, I mean, I, I'm sure there are some other party leaders who once that dissension started to form cracks would have said, okay, you told the party liner, you got to go, we've got to stay together here. He didn't do that. No, and that and that's a decision that he's made. That's uh, you know, and so that's that's fine. I mean, obviously, kicking somebody out of caucus is a you know, I would say would be a last resort. But uh, I would ho- hope that uh, that if if you're going to say that in public, that there's no repercussions for speaking out, then that there would actually be none. Okay. And uh, but I, I I don't feel that's the case, and I know many others don't feel that way either. Um, when we talk about this, uh, and whenever we talk about um, conservative politics, there's a, a large sentiment from our listeners, and, and, and I agree with them, in terms of this is same old, same old, in terms of conservative politics, where um, it, it is a fractured position in, in, in this country, and ultimately you will eat yourselves and rip the party apart. Do you not fear that by doing this and giving rise to other parties and other factions within the party, you just pave the way for the NDP to step in? Would it not be more politically expedient for you guys all to pull together and prevent uh, present a unified front? Absolutely. I, I would love to have, to have this party come together and uh, and then make sure that the NDP aren't re-elected. That's absolutely my goal. Uh, I, I was elected to represent the people in the constituency, and, and I was elected under the UCP banner, and so I fully uh, support that. Obviously, we're in a situation now where where the, there's many, many Albertans have lost trust in, in our leader, and obviously there's, there's no way to, uh, to be able to go into an election if that trust isn't restored to Albertans. And so obviously, this is, the, you know, for myself, this, this was a tough decision. I didn't want to do this. I wouldn't, didn't want to have to do this. But I feel that I had to in order to, to save this party and have this party continue on so that we can make sure the NDP aren't reelected in 2023. And uh, this, this, the situation we're in now isn't because of, of what I've done and what other MLAs have done speaking out in the past. The, those are, the, the speaking out is a result of the problems that are there. 
and so we need to we need to solve these problems and we need to get things back together and 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 make sure that we we have a united party going forward as you say the pandemic wasn't specifically mentioned in your facebook post but some of the things that were let's talk about where um he lost the trust of albertans where he went wrong let's start with the doctors that was one of the cases that you brought up saying the way you handled the doctor's file uh uh, didn't work and, and cost us what would you have done where did he go wrong what did you tell him and what did he ignore well, I think what, uh, especially in rural Alberta with the doctor situation, we have, uh, you know, have, have had a chronic shortage of doctors in rural Alberta. And uh, because of the way that, 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 that they went about uh, dealing with the doctors at, at that time, we actually risked losing more doctors in rural Alberta. And of course, we, of course, we don't have a, we can't afford to, to lose any more doctors in rural Alberta. So we, uh, so that was an issue right from the start, and that was brought up right from the start. Um, and obviously there was, uh, it took a while, but finally there was some backtracking there. But in the meantime, it uh, you know it's, it created a lot of stress again, especially in rural Alberta, where where doctors are short, uh, with uh, with people you know wanting to make sure that they they had a doctor and didn't lose their doctor. So that that was one of the issues right there. Um, when you mention a weak and ineffective. Um approach to dealing with Ottawa. Um, dealing with Ottawa is usually a slam dunk for an Alberta politician. It, it's pretty easy. Yep. Uh, where did Jason Kenney go wrong? Well, I, th- I think, you know, he, he had the committee go travel around Alberta getting advice and everything. And, uh, but but it, it, I think what people want to see, and that's what I've heard over and over again from my constituents, is that they they want to see action. They want to see something concrete happening. They, uh, they've seen, uh, you know, not a lot of action, not a, you know, maybe some letters being sent, but uh, but we need a lot more. And, and it's interesting. I was talking to one of my one of my constituents, actually, a good friend of mine, and that was what the number one thing in, is his concern with with the leadership in the party was was dealing with Ottawa. And I, and I do hear that over and over again that we we need to be stronger. We need to be be able to stand up to Ottawa. And uh, it seems like sometimes we you know we're a little weak need when it comes to dealing with Ottawa, and we're not. Uh, and, and that allows the, the opportunity for, for people to just not feel like they're represented. Obviously, that was you know, a campaign promise and something uh, Jason Kenney campaigned as a leader on is, uh, is, is standing strong to Ottawa, but uh, the Albertans haven't seen that. Um, just the reaction from the listeners, and uh, I'll use them to ask the question. Um, one listener says, solve the problems behind the closed doors. NDP are loving this. Uh, another one saying, you know, that basically what you're doing is ripping the party again into factions and the NDP will uh, take full advantage of that. Um, you say that's not the goal. You want to present a unified front. When we see people splintering off like yourself and Mr. Hansen and the UCP MLAs who've signed up to uh, publicly object to what the Premier did in terms of the pandemic, you've got two years. Where do you go from here? What's the next step? If you want to have a unified Conservative Party going into the next election, when right now it seems to be splintering and fracturing, um, what happens next? What will you be working towards? As you say, you want the unified front. How do you make that happen from where we are right now? Well, I think there, there has to be a decision on leadership uh, in the party. I think that's uh, paramount. Uh, that's something I hear loud and clear from across Alberta, and then particularly in my constituency. And uh, that's something that has to be uh, taken care of. I think we need uh, that, that needs to be put to bed as soon as possible. Um, and again, Shay, this, this is something... This, this isn't something new. This is something that's been going on for a while as, as far as this, uh, this lack of confidence in the leader and the lack of trust in the leader. And so we need to get that taken care of. And, and again, it isn't the MLA speaking out that have caused this. The MLA speaking out, is a, that's a symptom of, of an inner disease. 
that's and so that's that's why MLAs are speaking out is because there's there's problems already there and there's there's you know we're losing good people in the party that people are losing board members on in their constituency associations we we can't continue to lose good people from this party and expect this party to to survive and 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 that's why that's why MLAs are speaking out is because they want to represent their constituencies and they don't want this party to fall apart they want to keep this party together but as it is right now we keep losing really really good people um where are they going? What that, that that's the question I have. Um, you know, it, 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 in some ways you could you could say, well, we want this to happen, and the premier won't do what we want, so we're taking our ball and we're going home. Where do you go? Who's going with you? Um, that's that's the question I have because right now it seems like the, this party is is uh, eating itself from inside. Um, I don't understand how that advances your personal agenda or the premier's. It just seems to be counterproductive all the way around. Yeah, and and, and I honestly don't have a personal agenda here other than representing my constituents. And uh, but but of course, like I said, say these. Uh the, the, the people are are upset. They're leaving the party. We need to we need to do what it takes to to stop the bleeding in the party. We need to get people back together. We need to have have our constituency association strong. We we got to quit losing board members, and 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 people are going. And and the, that's we can't continue to have that. We need to keep working. And and that's that's what people want. There's the, the majority of people I'm talking to. They want a strong UCP party. But they they don't see that they have that now, and they they see that it's uh, that it's not something they can support, and so they they want to have it. They want to have that strong UCP party. They do, and I do too. But and we need to have that so we can we can move forward and and be able to form government in 2023. Who leads that government? Do you have aspirations of leadership, or is there somebody that you've had talks with, or are there other names being thrown about that might do a better job than Jason Kenney? I think if the leadership comes up, then I believe there'll be many good people step forward. I think there's a lot of lot of good people in Alberta that are that are more than capable of leading this province. Um, I think uh, it, you know one of the things with leadership, of course, is being able to listen and, and take advice and and make decisions. And and I, I believe there's many good people that'll step forward if uh, if that happens. See that taking advice and making the decisions. That's what the premier did. He didn't take your advice, but he made the decision. Um, would this be different if he had agreed with you? I mean, that, like you're saying, that's the leader's job. Get the advice, make the decision. That's what he did. Yep, yep, exactly. He, he's made the decisions, and, uh, and we, when we can discuss whether he took any advice or not or how much advice he's taken. I think uh, caucus has been speaking up uh, loud and clear over time, and, uh, and, and there's a lot of caucus that, that don't feel like they've been listened to. And, uh, and obviously, I think if you look across Alberta, that's, the, that's what we're hearing from our constituents, too. Mr. Lowen, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. I really do appreciate your time. Okay, thanks, Shay. I appreciate it, too. Thank you very much. That is, yeah, have a good day. Yeah, you too. That is Todd Lowen, who is uh, the UCP MLA from uh, Peace Country, um, and he is the one who resigned as UCP caucus chair overnight and also called on Premier Jason Kenney to resign. These are your calls on what we heard from Todd Lowen, the UCP MLA and former caucus chair. He has stepped down from that position, and he is also calling on the Premier to step down as leader of the UCP party. Let's start with Marianne. Hi, Marianne. Uh, Marianne, are you we'll there? Have it with okay, Marianne, we'll give you a try in a second here. Let's go to John. Hi, John, how are you? Oh, I'm good, thanks. What do you think? Well, for instance, I, I've discovered through business that when somebody's makes a Facebook uh, statement at 2 o'clock in the morning 
or an email. They're typically uh, pretty pie-eyed at that time, so I tend to ignore that. We can't go throwing that around. We have no idea what was going on. Well, people said that for the last four years about Trump sending out crackpot messages on social media at 2 in the morning. Okay, what's the point, John? I'm not going to sit here and let you say that he was drunk and that's why he sent out the Facebook post. That's ridiculous. No point? Okay, thanks, John. Uh, Let's go to Scott. Hi, Scott, how are you? Hey, well, I think the reason Jason Kenney's under fire, and and, and also Dita Hinshaw should be as well, is um, there's not a lot of science based in some of the things they're doing. And I'm sorry, but the CDC, who've done their own misleading messaging themselves, but the numbers that they show are that outside transmission is less than zero point, uh, less than point zero one percent of uh, of transmission of COVID, and yet you're punishing places like golf courses, you're punishing restaurants who have gone to great expense to put out patios, mm-hmm. and you haven't based it on any science. And I'm sorry, but those are the facts. So at some point, Jason Kenney should answer to real science, not answering to pressure. He should come out and put the messaging there strong that these are the numbers and we're going to keep patios open. We're going to keep outdoor services open, example, golf courses. Uh, we're, we're not going to uh, punish them and make them go to, you know, twosomes instead of foursomes. Let's get, let's, how about if reality starts to take over at some point here? Yeah, so you that's, know, my, that's my thoughts for the day. Thanks for your time. Yeah, you bet, Scott. Thanks very much. And, you know, when we had the Premier on the air uh, a couple of weeks back, I, I sort of pushed him on that and said, hey, if you have evidence, people are calling for the evidence. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? If you can stand up and say, okay, we're shutting down youth sports because of this, here's why. If we're shutting down patios, this is why we are shutting down patios. But I think a lot of people are just sort of, okay, well, why are you doing this? Give me some evidence. Give me some information. Why are you going ahead and doing what you're doing? Back it up with some data that could go a long way. Maybe there is no data. I, I, I don't know. But I think he makes a good point in terms of you're making these decisions and we'll go along with the decision. If we have the evidence to back it up, let's go to Peter now. Hi, Peter. How are you? Oh, pretty good. You know, to be a leader, you, you got to have willing followers. And if you don't, then you're nothing more than a dictator. Uh, that's kind of a general statement, but it does apply a little bit here. Uh, I think Jason Kenney's trouble started two days after the leadership race. And the reason I say that is how can it be a united conservative party if all your opponents evaporate out of whatever reason, I think there should have been all kinds of accommodation for the other candidates to have been included in uh, the future party. And they weren't at that point. And I think things have gone somewhat sideways for a couple years since the leadership race. You think right and from the beginning it, he's been reeling? Uh, he's, he's been in trouble right from the beginning because... Because, uh, you know, how can you be united when all your opponents disappear? Yeah, I, I mean, he's been getting it from also his opponents haven't disappeared. They're all around. <laughs> Everywhere he looks, he's got an well, opponent. Right? I know, and they're circling. <laughs> yeah, they are. They absolutely are. Yeah, Peter, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Jason Kenney right now. I mean, he's got the opposition, which it's their job to be the opposition. That's what they're called. Uh, but he's also got the internal opposition. He, um, he, he's, he doesn't have a lot of friendly faces in Alberta right now. He's getting it from all sides. Let's check in with Judy and see what she thinks. Hi, Judy. 
Hey, um, I, I, you know, I'm not even sure where to start. I, I think that the fact that Jason Kenney is in the middle and he has 49% of the people that think that he's not doing a good enough job mm-hmm. too easy or 49% too tough means he's actually making his own decisions and trying to look after the whole province. I, I hear the people who are upset with the restrictions, and I agree. I think some of them are really stupid, too. But if he ignored that and just opened things wide up, he would be ignoring 50% of the population that's terrified. And if he shut everything down, he'd be ignoring 50% of the population that's saying, hey, this isn't impacting me. So I think he's trying to walk the middle ground, and I think he deserves some credit for that. Now, having said that, I appreciate that he comes from Ottawa, where the rule is you set the tone and everybody steps in line. And I don't think Alberta operates that way, and maybe there's a bit of a learning curve there on I do need to listen to my guys more. And, I mean, he started doing um, Facebook time with members, and he started doing... Yes, yep. I mean, that's, that's, that's new for him, and because he was our MP for years and years and years, and we would never hear from him because we were a locked-in vote, and he had... You know, he had to be in touch with the immigrants in Ontario, and he had to be doing all of those other things. And there was that appreciation that, hey, he doesn't really need to listen to us right now because he has the, uh, these other right, things. Right, he's doing do. other things, yeah. But, but I, think, I think now, he, you know, he's, he, I think he's trying to make that effort to listen, and I, I'm so appreciative of the fact that he allows dissent. I'm so sick of the federal system where there's one voice, and if you don't toe t- the line, you get kicked out. I mean, I just... Uh, yeah, but people, road, who, but... but people who've been in politics and people who've watched politics, Judy, will tell you, when you try and walk that line, try and be everything to everybody, you're going to fail. It doesn't work. You've got to take a stand, right? That's but the you know what? I don't, I, don't, I, I hear you, except that I don't think he's trying to be everything to everybody. I think he's trying to do what he believes is right, which is the middle ground. And, enough, and I yeah. think that that is leadership. He's trying to find the middle ground and not cater to either of the edges. So he anyway. still has your support? You bet. Okay. Thank you, Jude. Appreciate okay. the call. Bye-bye. All right. Let's try Marianne again. I understand Marianne was ordering a lunch last time I went to her. Marianne, are you ready to go? Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry about that before. <laughs> no problem. Uh, what I want to say, first of all, Shay, you do a fantastic job of asking really tough, open-ended questions. And I think probably a lot of your audience members would sit there and say, yes, I'm glad he asked that question. Oh, I, pre- I, I try my hardest. I appreciate that. Thank you. But this morning when I heard this news, my, my first thought was, Todd who? And then my second thought was, I bet you this guy is a former Wild Roser. Looked him up. Sure enough. So there's still the Wild Rose malcontents mm-hmm. that are coming to the fore now. And uh, you know what? These people are not helping the conservative cause in Alberta because, sure enough, we're going to get NDP again. And enough people have lost jobs. Their businesses have been damaged by the NDP. We don't need a repeat of this. This is selfishness and self-serving politics from this guy. Okay, Marianne, in terms of the political game that these people play, you couldn't be more right. Okay, they are absolutely cutting themselves off the knees and hurting their chances at re-election. But the other side of that, and the argument is, we're not just going to toe the party line. We were elected to represent our constituents. That's not being done. It is our job to speak up. They're speaking up, and then there's considering 
you know, your whole voter base. Mm-hmm. And not everybody is just simply on the far right. You can't tell me that in his jurisdiction, the Peace River area, where they're all saying uh, no masks whatsoever. I don't buy that. Okay. Thanks for the call, Mary, and I appreciate it. Um, you know, I mean, those are two strong arguments. First of all, if you're if you're in politics, you're, you're playing the game. That, that's the job, right? And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Politicians have one job before all other jobs. Get elected and stay elected. That's it. Nothing comes before that um, for most of them. So when they make a move like this, it hurts their chances of doing something like that. Because as a number of you have said on the text line and on the phone line, the NDP are loving this. This is fantastic. When you've got uh, the governing party uh, cratering from the inside, you don't really have to do anything. You put your feet up and watch the show. Uh, But at the same time, especially in this conservative party where he has said he encourages the opposition and he encourages the voices from people who don't agree with what he's doing and he doesn't want to shut down that kind of discussion and they have a valuable role to play in representing their constituents. So those are two strong arguments because that's what they're there to do is represent their constituents. They're also there to get elected. And sometimes, as we're seeing right now, those two don't work well together. So how do you handle that situation? Let's get another one in here from Mel. Hi, Mel. Hey, good morning. Another great show. Thank you, sir. Anyway, uh, it comes down to true democracy. They turn around and the UCP party, including the leader and all the MLAs, meet together in a general caucus, everybody. They go over all the requests from individual MLAs. Everything gets voted on. Whatever the winning vote is on a decision, that's how the party is run. Instead of this constant backfighting and everything like that. And the problem being is we're such a diverse province, so many different ideas, and uh, but it has to be done on the whole caucus votes on any concerns from any MLAs. I know that would take a lot of time. Sure but, would, yeah, but it can be done. Yeah, and then whatever the vote turns out to be, that's what the decision is. And it it, it seems to me maybe that's too simple, uh, you know, simplistic, but that's that, the that... way it has to be. But you probably noticed Shay, the the country, the whole country, and in Alberta here specifically, there's too many me me people they're interested in themselves and not the whole picture we have to learn to get together you know yeah well hey i mean i'm sure jason kenny would agree with you 110 percent on that one mel Uh, a little party unity would go a long way uh for him right now i think probably allow him to sleep a little better at night Well, the threat of war, of course, is uh, never far off in the Middle East, especially in Israel and the Gaza Strip, an area where uh, millions of Palestinians have lived under a blockade for almost 15 years now. Tensions have always run high, uh, but they exploded into deadly violence over this weekend, and it continues today. The violence there there has now left more than 80 people dead in Gaza. Seven more have been killed in Israel. Uh, That's, you know, as of this morning, undoubtedly it's gone up since then as rocket attacks fired into Israel continue and airstrikes back into Gaza continue as well, uh, along with mobs rampaging through the streets. People are being lynched, dragged from their cars. It is an absolutely horrific situation, and it appears 
to be escalating by the hour. Ferry de Kerkhove is uh, joining us now. Ferry has a long, long history in international relations, a former ambassador for Canada, worked for the Foreign Service, Department of Foreign Affairs. He's a CGAI fellow, and he's going to try and get a little clarity around this situation for us, if that's possible. Um, Ferry, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. With pleasure. Clarity? Sorry, I'm going to hang up. (laughs) Exactly, right? I mean, saying what started this, that's an impossible question. And it could go back a very, very, very long time. But let's just try and focus in on what's happened over the past few days, this latest round of violence that started over the weekend. What triggered this this explosion in violence? Well, how it started is that tension has been rising over this kind of impending eviction of some Palestinian families uh, from a disputed land in East Jerusalem. And, and then there's been an increasing set of skirmishes between Israeli and Palestinian in the old city of, of Jerusalem. I, there's, a, there's a lengthy discussion that has to do about the impending eviction. I don't know if we have until midnight, but we We may get back to that one. But then you add to that two sets of events that converge. Last weekend, the Palestinian Muslims streamed to Haram al-Sharif for Ramadan prayer, which is a very holy site, as you know. And then a lot lot of them assembling in in a square called Laylat al-Qadr on May May 8. And, and of course, all that to mark the, the revelation of the Quran to Prophet Muhammad. And so it's one of the most sacred night of, of Ramadan, mm-hmm. but, but the, you know, we're talking about the whole Islamic calendar as well. Jerusalem is a city of importance to the Jews, to the Christian, to the, to the Muslim. And, and meanwhile, the, the problem, the, the, you had a conflict of timing, because the Israeli Jews were gathering ahead of Jerusalem Day on Monday. Right. They celebrate the unification of Jerusalem, which is, of course, goes to the heart of the pain of the Arab who've always thought the Palestinians that East Jerusalem was theirs. But ever since 1967 war, Jerusalem was taken over entirely by 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 the Israeli and Netanyahu has insisted that it was the unified capital city of Israel, even though the Palestinians have rights, even though in international law you've had some denunciation of of the occupation, all that. So and then you know add to the to the fire, if it's possible, the political crisis in both Israel and in in uh, in the Palestinian. You have a. The, the Palestinian Authority. So Netanyahu is is still trying to become a, a yep. the prime again for the hundredth time. No, sorry, for the fifth time, uh, the, the prime minister of his own country. They established a, a ruling coalition. He's been dismissed by President Rivlin because he couldn't assemble a majority. So all that is a, is a kind of a melting pot. And the problem is that he may be facing the end of his career, uh, and he no longer has the popular mandate. And on the other side. You have Mahmoud Abbas, who should have relinquished power, uh, I was going to say rudely a century ago, but more than 20 years ago. He still clings to power, and he finally accepted to launch election. But, of course, the crisis with Hamas and within the Palestinian Authority, he had to cancel them once again, also in part because the Israeli refused to allow, the, the, to allow an election to take place in East Jerusalem, even though it's a majority, overwhelming majority of Palestinians. 
I could go on and yep, on yep. and on, but I'll just stop for a moment. Yeah, and you know, Phil, you're right. Take a breath. <laughs> you're right. That is the thing about this situation. There is no end to the reasons for why we get to where we are. But I guess the focus, you know, that we have to take a look at is. It's the people. It's the people that have suffered for years and years and years and years. Um, They're the ones to pay the price for all of this geopolitical stuff that happens around the world and happens more specifically in that region. And they're the ones that constantly pay the price through this. And, and I have to underscore the fact that the ones who suffered most since, of course, the, the creation of Israel after the decision of the United Nations, UNSCOP, you wouldn't remind, remember the United Nations Commission on the, Palestine, on the Palestine, but basically ever since that time, the Palestinians have been chased or moved out, and they've never had a country, even though the, the, man, the, the, the UN mandate is to actually create two states mm-hmm. living in peace and, beside one another. And that, that two-state solution since 2002, after the two intifada, that is the uprising on the Palestinian side, has been the, the, the mantra of the whole conflict, even though neither Netanyahu, neither uh, his opponent believe today that there's, there's, a, there's a place for a Palestinian state. And this is what is very trying, in a sense that normally, uh, you, if, if that's the the condition under which you're going to live, but you refuse to create a Palestinian state. Meanwhile, you've got settler expanding to the point where there's just a rump left. So there's a perpetual tension there. And, and, and I think that's one of the, the major problems that we're facing today. And the international community, particularly the Americans, have done actually very little to change the, the, to change the situation on the ground. They, you, if you remember, Obama was saying, oh, well, please, my dear Netanyahu, please, Please stop the the, yeah, the, yeah. the the settlement, and he played. Netanyahu could play the violin on top of the head of Obama without any problem, and and, and that continues. And and the kicking out of a family from East Jerusalem is just a continuation of this attempt, basically, to control and make the whole former Palestinian mandate, that is, the whole area, becoming Israel. And you mentioned the international community. I don't think anybody has faith that uh, these two sides will ever be able to sit down and sort this out on their own. That's been proven time and time again. The international community, in, in response to what happened over the course of the weekend, the UN came out and said that they saw, thought some of the actions taken by the Israeli defense, defense forces were unwarranted and disproportionate, and they were indiscriminate. They called on all sides to de-escalate. They actually had come to agreement on a, on a joint statement to be released yesterday, but it was blocked by the United States. So it seems like even the, you know, the international community can't seem to get a handle on this and come out with a clear directive. Absolutely, and as I, you know, there's 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 a, a, an American author, Charles Tilly, who once wrote that the American position has always been biased towards Israel, not necessarily uniquely because the strong the strength of the Jewish lobby in the United States, which is there evidently, but because. You know, ever since 9-11, there's been this feeling, of course, you don't say that publicly because this is not kosher, mm-hmm. but you, you, you basically, there's a danger with the Arab, with the Muslim, 9-11, all that, and it's conflated into an attitude by the U.S. whenever there's a negotiation to treat the Palestinian and the Israeli on the same footing. 
But, you know, Israel is an internationally recognized nation, powerful, economically successful, a brilliant success, no question about it. And on the other hand, you've got an, a Palestinian authority which doesn't even control, it's not really a, a government of itself, it's an administration. And then you have the perennial issue of Hamas, which is that, that you know, which is actually a place where you've got more than the greatest population of Palestinians for now, in that tiny little thing that is not larger than the, the city of Toronto, right. uh, and, is, and is actually the one that continues the war against, uh, against Israel. And, and this is something that sometimes, you know what, sometimes I wonder whether it's not a bonus for Netanyahu to have this opposition which prevents any unity between the Palestinian Authority of Mahmoud Abbas and the, and the, and the Hamas guy. And in fact, it allows, it allows Netanyahu to say, listen, how can I even come to an agreement for, on, a, on a Palestinian state when these two entities, which form what the Palestinian is all about, can get together and, and get along? Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um... So where do we go from here? I'm hearing there, there may be something brokered through Egypt. That's typically how these things um, quiet down. Do you think this will continue to escalate, or is there a plan being worked on to try and de-escalate things and get us back to at least the well, uneasy tension? I, I just checked my crystal ball, and it refused to answer, so I'll, I'm going to create it on my own. <laughs> the, 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 the point is that in 2014, the, 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 the conflict lasted for 50, more than 50 days, and you had over 2,000 deaths. Uh, the question is, in the present political circumstances, is it possible for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, to actually get into Gaza and slam once and for all Hamas? Is that, is, are we going to do cast lead, which we did in 2008, 2014, or is there an alternative? Until such time as the international community and the Palestinian Authority can convince this rump government, which is deemed terrorist by all, all nations, mm-hmm. uh, Hamas, will finally, could they finally decide to say, okay, we accept that this Israel exists and, and, and we're going to play ball. Until such time, we can, we, we, all the pious prayer that we can utter won't make much difference. And, 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 and the problem is that even on that score, the, the U.S. and the Russian and others can't do anything because Hamas is, you know, when they are slammed and beaten up for them, it's a victory. It's a continuation of the jihad that they maintain. It's the martyrdom and mentality. Meanwhile, the popu- meanwhile, the population of Hamas in, is, is being slaughtered. Their building is being demolished. It's, and, and, you know, the IDF, and I, you know, it's a war zone, okay? Mm-hmm. But the IDF does try to at least conduct these operations in as, quote, clean as possible. They, they, they announce when they're going yep. to strike a building, but that doesn't change much. You're still going to have 300, 400 uh, victims, and it's, it's going to be horrifying. So in answer to your last question, the Egyptians are usually the one who handle it. Mubarak was a great artist. He had Soleimani, who was his own uh, Suleiman, who did a superb job. I'm not sure that the Egyptians are keen to get involved until there's a sense of slowdown in yeah. the explosion. They're smart enough not to put their finger in the middle of a fire. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, it's just uh, nobody wants yeah. to get involved. Ferry, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. 
With pleasure. All the best. Thank you very much. That is Ferry Der Kerkhov, who has a long, long history in the Foreign Service with Canada and uh, Foreign Affairs and served as an ambassador to Egypt. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.